Tēnā koutou no mai, hi to mai. Welcome to Q&A, I'm Jack Tame. This morning, National Leader Christopher Luxon is here live as he counts down to election year. And then I sit down with the head of the World Trade Organization to ask whether she can stop big countries from bullying small ones. I don't want you to downplay New Zealand's weight uh, too much. Yes, it's a small country, but it punches above its weight consistently. And Australia's new Home Affairs Minister considers the future of 501s. I think what will change is how that power is exercised with relation to people who are New Zealanders living in Australia. We'll have that interview shortly. But first this morning, National says its signature tax policy is under review after the Reserve Bank raised the official cash rate by a record 75 basis points this week. It's a year this week since Christopher Luxon took over as leader of the opposition and his party is consistently polling higher than Labour as it heads into the 2023 election campaign. Christopher Luxon, tēnā koe, good morning. Good morning, great to be with you, Jack. The economic Congratulations also on your great oh, news award-winning... Buttering me up nice and early. No, that was very good. <laughs> No, well thank done. you very Congratulations. much. Congratulations. Thank you. The economic forecasts this week are grim. Why is National the party for this economic moment? Well, look, I mean, what we really need is a government that actually has you know, really good economic management and responsible economic management. And I think what we saw this week was really an economic earthquake, is the best way I can describe it. We knew that we would probably get a 75 basis point lift in, in interest rates, but what we didn't expect to get was the outlook and the forecast being as pessimistic as it is and deteriorating in the way it is. Essentially, you know, there were three big takeaways. Mm. You know, inflation's here for longer. That means the cost of living goes on and is tougher for people. It still hasn't yet peaked. As a result of that, interest rates are having to be lifted uh, and there'll be more interest rate rises. That's incredibly worrying for people who are just getting into, into their homes. Uh, and then the last bit is actually for the first time we're seeing a recession you know, in quarter two next year, lasting a year, and then very li you know, limited or no growth essentially in the years after that. So you know, those are the conditions that we see. And on that basis, I think it's entirely appropriate that you know, governments need to adjust um, you know, their, their settings and their policies and their mm. plans for those conditions. I want to talk about the role of the Reserve Bank. And over the last few months, you have repeatedly and quite forcefully at times called into question the role the Reserve Bank has played in fueling inflation. Do you have confidence in Reserve Bank Governor Adrian Orr? Well, look, I mean, if I just step it back, I mean, our challenge in, in the economy in recent, over the last wee period has been we've had a government with its foot flat on the accelerator spending money like never before. It's a billion dollars more a week than what we had in 2017. At the same time, we've had the economy really constrained with respect to immigration settings mm. really tap back. And then you've had the Reserve Bank actually printing money for a long period of that period of time. And now all of a sudden it's gone from the accelerator into mm. the brakes and lifting interest rates. So all we've been asking for is to say, look, you know, there, were, there was probably some things that were done very well at the very beginning phases of COVID. There are other bits that you sort of say, did we carry on for mm. too long? Did it actually contribute to a worsening cost of living crisis? And that's why we've wanted an independent review before we lock in on a decision around the Reserve Bank. OK, we'll government. come back to the Reserve Bank in a second. You, this billion-dollar-a-week line, I've, I've heard it quite a few times. How much have wages increased since 2017? Well, wages have increased tremendously. This is the point, right? Like, revenue has increased for the government as well. Yeah. Um, company profits have increased as well, so the tax take is higher. So, I mean, undoubtedly, the government is spending many billions of dollar, dollars my, a year, my, more than 2017. But they're also taking in yeah. more because Kiwis are earning more. Yeah, but my point's a pretty simple one, which is that I think the government has conflated spending and announcements mm. with actually delivering outcomes. And yeah. I think they're, they're two very different concepts. Okay. When I was a CEO, you know, you could get different outcomes for your company, spending the same amount of resources. How you actually deploy that money and how you prioritise it really makes a big difference. Everyone agrees outcomes are critical. And we'll talk a bit, uh, a bit more about that this morning. Back to my question, though. You didn't answer it. Do you have confidence in Adrian Orr? Well, what we'd want to do is do a Reserve Bank independent review from day one when we get to government. So as it stands, do you have confidence in it? Our preference was for Grant Robertson. We wrote to him saying, why don't mm. you follow the election year protocol, extend them for a year, uh, do the independent review, and then we can make an assessment. Now, the Reserve Bank held its own review that was internationally peer-reviewed. You are really questioning the integrity of those reviewers. No, we're not. I mean, the Reserve Bank marked its own homework is essentially what happened mm. there. And what we were asking for was an independent review. And because we fundamentally do want to learn right. what did work well and what would we do differently again in another, another situation. So let's play this out. If you are in government in a year's time and a review finds greater wrongdoing than the Reserve Bank found with its own review, is it your expectation that the Governor of the Reserve Bank would resign? Um, hypothetical, I want to see the outcome of that independent review before we'd make that decision. But this is a critical point. I mean, it, com it comes down not only to the independence of the, of, the, of the Reserve Bank, but it comes down to the, the role and function. And if you are in government 
and an independent review finds that the Reserve Bank has made mistakes in responding to inflation and responding to the pressures of the pandemic, we need to know whether or not the government of the day actually has confidence. Yeah, in the it's government. premature for me to say that. I mean, all I'm saying to you is I want an independent review of the Reserve Bank's actions through that period of time. I would also ask, you know, Grant Roberts and I thought, frankly, should have just extended Adrian Orr for a year to give, if it's a new government coming in, which we hope it will be, uh, then the opportunity to work out what they want to do. Does Bill English did that you know, back in 2017. I thought it was the appropriate decision. Does unemployment have to go up for inflation to come down? No, I, look, I really hope that we don't orchestrate a recession here in New Zealand because the other thing you saw in the forecast was actually unemployment almost doubling uh, mm. about 2025. But again, what is happening is a massive amount of inconsistency. You have the government, as I said, foot on the accelerator doing the spending. The Reserve Bank now trying to pump the brakes super, super hard. So back to that point. But you I... want the government and the Reserve Bank actually working together. And right. if they did, we could actually orchestrate what's called a soft landing and actually try and avoid a recession. Sure, sure, we do sure, not but, want to see people but, losing their jobs. But, but uh, is unemployment at its current rate sustainable? Um, the bottom line is we need more workers uh, and we've got it's unemployment not answering beyond the, the maximum Come on. level of slot. Is unemployment at its current rate sustainable? Um, look, I think we want as many people in jobs. We want to avoid I, we job all agree as this. much as possible. I know, I know, but is unemployment at its current rate sustainable? Look, I think it's not sustainable because I think we've actually got an economy that's overheated and we've got too many. We've got a lot of job shortages, as you've seen, a right. lot of vacancies across the sectors, across different parts How of the How high does it have to go? For inflation to come down, uh, I don't want it to go higher, and I'm not. I'm not going there. You've just said it's unsustainable. No, I know, no one wants it to go higher. You've just said it's unsustainable. How high does it have to go? It's unsustainable at the moment because we've got an economy where we are crying out for mm. workers, and we need more workers into this country through immigration settings. Right. But what I'm saying to you is, we do not want New Zealanders losing their jobs. That is not acceptable. Just to say, we've got to orchestrate a recession to deal with inflation. But you've just said, you've just acknowledged that unemployment at its current level is unsustainable. So how high does it have to go in order for inflation? To come down. Uh, I don't know, Jack, and I'm not going to go there. My, my job would be to make sure if I was in right. government, I was doing all the things that I could control around okay. government spending, which is not happening here, and making sure that we are joined up with the Reserve Bank, both tackling inflation, getting it back to under 3%. The point here is that National would scrap the dual mandate, and of course the Reserve Correct. Bank at the moment is mandated to maintain maximum sustainable employment. You say unemployment at the moment well, is unsustainable. By their own remarks, they're saying it's beyond maximum sustainable right, employment, right? right? They're saying it's, it's, they've, they've overcooked that, you know, it's too low. So, so National says that the current unemployment rate is unsustainable, but at the same time it will sanction people who are on benefits. How is that going to work next year? No, what we've been saying very clearly is, and you're talking about now our welfare that works program. Yeah. What we're saying is we've got an economy at the moment that has 50,000 more people on unemployment mm. benefits. We've focused very much on the under 25s. Mm. We've said there's 34,000 young people under 25. And you've just said that our current unemployment rate is unsustainable, which means we're going to have a higher unemployment rate, but at the same time as you need us to have a higher unemployment rate, you're going to be sanctioning people on benefits. The bottom line, Jack, is I want unemployment to be as, you know, to be as low as it possibly can be. The reality is the Reserve Bank has said that it's probably overcooked the maximum sustainable employment. We still have a lot of people sitting on welfare that we need to transition from welfare into work. We also need to be able to open up our immigration settings. That is one one of the things that is definitely contributing to inflation. Costs being passed on mm. to businesses that leads to higher prices, inflation, uh, immigration bottlenecks, mm. very poor control of government spending and ultimately also tax relief and Reserve Bank government. If National, is the, party of, um, if National is the party of economic management, why has it taken until now to plainly acknowledge that your tax package would be inflationary. Well, look, I mean, what we're, no, what we're saying is, the, the, I want to talk through the tax piece because okay. I you know, appreciate this got confused. The first thing I'd say to you is that we want to implement and will implement mm. tax indexation. What's happening is people who are in the squeeze middle, think about doctors, nurses, police officers, mm. have actually got caught as their wages have increased in higher tax brackets, and yet their wages haven't kept up with inflation. Right. So that's indexation really, stays, that's absolutely, absolutely. really okay. unfair. It's not ideal. Ideological. Let's take the current progressive system. Mm. And I'll just say to you, a much better mechanism than doing three-month cost of living right. payments to dead people. Everything else? Second part, we've said, is based off economic conditions, we would love to unwind all the Labor new taxes, uh, and we would look to do that. But mm. that is conditional upon our economic settings and our conditions. What we saw this week was incredibly alarming and quite shocking. And so when we look at that scenario that we've just talked through, mm. what's become obvious to us is one part of that was the 39 
99 cent tax rate. Uh, that's not as, that much, would as, be as much as we would like to yeah. do that. Um, the bottom line is we will not be able to afford to do that in our first term. Right, okay. In your first term, that's definitely off the, ca off the cards? Yes. Just to be 100% clear, that yes. is certainly off. That's not Based off the, the information that we've seen and the economic conditions and how they've deteriorated since a year ago when I became this leader, mm. uh, when we were at 2%, 2.5% interest rates and 4.5% inflation, based off what we're looking at around interest rates, inflation right. and recession, that is something that we just will not be okay, able to Okay, so not under review, that's definitely off the cards. Correct. Okay. What about those other elements? And then the like other elements. Yeah, the other, the other elements we want to be able to do in our first term, the exact uh, precise detail of how we phase that and right. how we do that, we think we can do it through the course of the first term. But the 39 cent tax rate, which we would still ideally like to unwind, the reality is we will not be able to do Has that. Has that in our been first damaging term. for you? No, I don't think so. How many times have you been asked by interviewers over the last <laughs> few months? how much you were going to get from your own tax cut yeah, but it doesn't, to the average Yeah, but it doesn't worker. really matter. We are a party of low tax and we're also a party of responsible economic management. Mm. And my frustration is this, is that households across New Zealand, on the back of this news, are making huge adjustments to their budgets mm. and their household budgets. If I was a, C a CEO of a company when you have a shock event happen, mm. if I carried on business as usual, that wouldn't be acceptable to customers, staff. And Grant Robertson, mm. frankly, should have been making adjustments through the course of the year. Mm. And so yeah, I appreciate the, the political opponents want to call it a U-turn, but the harsh reality is this is about being a good economic manager. It's a flip-flop. No, but, 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 but I'm sorry, but when you're facing high levels of inflation embedded for longer and a cost-of-living crisis going on, rapidly rising right. interest rates that are going to cause huge pain and suffering but, to New but Zealanders, my point is, if you're and the, also yours recession, is the party that's of, not acceptable to just sit there and say, we're going to carry on. But if yours is the party of economic management, why does this inflation come as a surprise? That's my question. Well, well I've been telling you this since I've become the leader. Okay, you know, I, remember, I remember going back to my, in some of those early weeks and just mm. saying, look, looking at the economic dashboard, we have some orange lights sitting there. Right. And actually, you need to make some actions and adjustments now, the longer it goes, the worse it gets, the levers right. get, get worse for you. Yeah, okay. okay. So, so I'm, but I'm, I want to dig into this a bit more. So I've got a timeline here. I hope you can bear with me. Yeah. <laughs> July 2021, so almost 18 months ago, right. the Reserve Bank stopped large-scale asset purchases, which was the first real sign it was concerned about inflation. October 2021, the Reserve Bank became the first central bank in the developed world to start lifting interest rates, another sign it was concerned about inflation. Three weeks later, the National Party announced a multi-billion dollar stimulus package. November 2021, the Reserve Bank lifted the OCR for the second time, signals that more rises are likely. February 2022, the Reserve Bank lifts the official cash rate for the third time in a row, yet another sign it's concerned about soaring inflation. And it's at that point, with inflation at almost 6%, forecast to get closer to 7%, that you announced multi-billion dollar tax cuts, the majority of which would go to the highest earning New Zealanders, pouring fuel on the inflation fire. When I lay out that timeline, <laughs> how can you tell me yours is the party of economic management? Absolutely, Jack. Look, we're going to inherit an economic mess from Labor. There is no doubt about it. And we're going to clean it up and sort it out like we did in 2000. All the signs that inflation was a major problem have been there for almost 18 months. And what we and yet you had a package that would give the wealthiest New Zealanders hundreds of millions, if not more than a billion dollars. What we've got is a, a disruption in the economic news and forecast that happened this week. That is incredibly sobering and very different. When you say the economy is going to be in recession for a year mm. and the following two years are going to be pretty low or anemic growth, that's a real worry. When you see interest rates now going mm. up, you know, as we saw again, sixth increase, largest we've had but and the, more to come. The argument you're that's making to me is, worrying. That, is that when you this, see week alone, is this week alone that inflation has got really well, Jack, bad. Well, Jack, in fairness, it's taken, did, it's taken six increases to the consumer price index and nine straight increases for, to the official cash rate for the National Party to acknowledge that its tax cuts would be inflationary. No, what we're saying to you is it's unaffordable to be able to unwind the 39-cent tax cut. We will continue to unwind the new taxes that Labor's brought in over the course of that first term, and we are very committed to doing indexation, which is the large part of what How we're proposing How much will indexation tax. cost? To, at the time, we talked about it being about $1.7 billion. And for us, we can fund that through waste. Um, you know, there is an inordinate amount of waste going on in our government spending at the mm. moment. And so that is a good, pragmatic, practical thing to do. Many other developed countries around the world, inflation adjusts their tax brackets and their mm. thresholds because they don't want people getting mm. poorly in that space. Let's talk about justice. Um, 
I think we both agree the situation in Sandringham this week is just awful. Yeah, I went there yesterday. Yeah. It's really sad. D does, does the government bear any responsibility? Well, let's be really clear. The person who bears responsibility is the offender. Mm. Uh, let's be really clear about that. But what you've had here is a government, and I know we've talked about this before, mm. that we feel is soft on crime. Mm. It hasn't taken into account the, the victims. Uh, I meet with a lot of ram raid victims, aggravated burglary victims uh, up mm. and down the country, and I can tell you there's huge pain and suffering and hurt that happens there uh, for customers and for mm. those employees and for those businesses. The second thing is we've needed much more serious consequences for serious offenders, which we talked about last week. Uh, and also I think New Zealanders are just owed the fact that a basic you know, provision is that you should be protected and, you know, and feel safe in your own home and your own mm. business and your own community. That's a, a reasonable request of a government. I think, I think we've got to be very careful <coughs> with what we say about Sandring at the moment because we don't have a lot of details. Correct. But what's clear is that the two people who have been arrested at this stage aren't youths, right? I think that the youngest is in his early to mid-30s. Uh, you have announced uh, policies to target youth crime, though, and I want to focus on one of them in particular, boot camps, because that's the, the headline policy. What evidence do you have that boot camps work? Yeah, look, I mean, I want to take a step back a little bit because when you're getting a ram raid every 15 hours, uh, when you actually don't have your kids at school... What when evidence 90 do you have of those boot camps work? No, no, I'll get there, but those 90% of ram raiders are actually disconnected from school. Mm. And then we see with the evidence that we've seen on ram raids through the course of this last mm. year, it's profound. So what we're saying is, look, for the youth offenders that we have, the system by and large works well, probably for 80% mm. of them or so, it's probably OK. But for the most serious repeat youth offenders, we need to take a different set of actions and have some tool sets. Great, and you've talked so, about the, so these the military academies. Of, yep, yeah, military academies, yep. boot camps, that's just a nice... Well, I know, I know people want to use it, but they use that in quite a derogatory way because essentially our New Zealand Defence Force have some of our best leaders and mentors. Why wouldn't you want them getting alongside They used to. I people? think the, the, uh, the Defence Force has lost a lot of people over the last few months. No, we'll get to that in a moment. No, no, no. OK, but... but so but, what I'm okay, saying Military academies, boot camps, but, but, potato, But here's, look, we, we tried that before. You know, there was, people said, like, we tried a 12-week programme before. Mm. You know? The reality of that programme was it delivered 50 to 65% reduction in violent offending, theft and burglary. They're good outcomes. Okay. They're so, good results OK, OK, good results. Well, and what okay. we're saying now is we would make it out to 12 months we'd make it much more intensive. We'd have community organisations inside working alongside that young person on rehabilitation, right. drug and alcohol, schooling. So what was and the, 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 the re-offending from the previous one? And the the, yeah, what was the previous? What was the what was the overall reoffending? Well, look, when I look at, as I said, violent crime, when I look what at what was the overall reoffending rate? I think from memory, it was about fifteen percent, is what Tama Potaka talked about in your debate last week. Fifteen percent reoffending. Not, not, not reoffending. So let's flip that around. Yep. 85 to 87% of people reoffended. Yeah, and what I'd say... Within two years of graduating, 85 to 87%. Would you, would you consider... And within 12 months, Jack, there were 50 to 65% who didn't commit violent offending, which is important, right. didn't affect theft or burglary. But 85 to 87% are reoffending within two years. Would and you consider that an offending... Uh, would you consider that successful? I would take that today, given the situation we've got a government doing absolutely nothing in this space. But what I'd say ha, to you is we can improve on that. We can improve a lot on that. OK, OK. Let's yeah, let me tell you why. On that. Have you read the analysis of that? Uh, yes, I have, and I spoke okay. to Peter Gluckman also this week as well. Um, well. I'll be interested in his thoughts, because I've got a quote from him that I'm sure you're yeah. expecting me to read. <laughs> So, in June 2016, a report to Minister Anne Tolley on the government's um, military-style activity camps, as they called them at the time, page 1.4, quote, In New Zealand, we offer a range of supervision programmes for high-end young people, including supervision with residents and supervision with activity orders. These programmes generally show better results in reducing offending than the military programme and at lower cost. Yeah, so let me give you some stories that what's changed since then, since 2008. Mm. One is we're talking about having a longer programme. We're talking about making it more intensive mm. with more, more intensive rehabilitation support in mm. those programmes. The other thing is we've based a lot of this off the LSV programme, which is, actually has an 80% success rate of not reoffending. It's a much shorter duration programme for slightly older uh, mm. offenders or, or people who actually want to volunteer to get into that programme. And the same principles are what we're applying here. So, look, I, you know, you can, you can criticise it, and everyone in political opponents won't have a go at it, and I get it, but the bottom line is I'm not prepared to go right off a whole generation of young people. 60% aren't the, going the to school. The point is it didn't 90% work. 90% of the RAM Raiders are actually not the, at school. The, There's massive uh, uh, growth in young people joining but, gangs. I'm not the point is, that but you, you, I mean, you've talked about the value of, of evidence, right? And yeah. the point is, OK, so, so 2013, you. Ministry um, of Social Development report on the same camps found 60% of the precipitants were Māori, almost 80% were Māori or Pacifica. They weren't boot camps, they were brown camps. 
Would yours yeah, be the same? I want to make powerful, critical circuit breaker interventions in these young would, people's would lives. Would yours be the same? Our program, as I said to you, is different. We're going to make it longer. We're going to have community organisations working with young people around their addiction issues, around their schooling and issues. And would we expect that 60% of resources. the participants would be Māori? Um, I'm not sure. When I, I, that's not the issue. The issue is about serious youth offenders and making sure we have a tool set that's available to help those young people change Tw the course of their lives. 2015 report on the camps includes this line. There is concern that some young people who have attended are being escalated up the sentencing tariff scale in order to access the programme. Are you happy with that? Jack, I'm telling you, I'm going to do something. I, I, I have to get outcomes So, so what country, measures will I'm you introduce prepared. to ensure that young people aren't disproportionately... First of all, that Māori aren't disproportionately... Um, sentenced to, to military academies, but also that young people who have committed crimes that perhaps aren't serious enough to, to end up in military academy aren't sent there just because it's available, which is what was the concern. Jack, as I said to you, look, we've got to do something. We're going to create a, a youth serious offender category for the judges and courts. They've got another set of tools to be able to use. 15 to 17 year olds in military academies for a longer duration mm. with much more intensive support around community organisations and then importantly a community organisation sticking with that young person 12 months after they've come out of that, of that military academy. I think that's the best way we've got to be able to change the course and trajectory of someone's Nothing you've life. given me addresses the problems with it, uh, addresses well, the problems that were identified by your own government last time. And what I'm concerned that young people were being unfairly sentenced. 80% of the kids who were locked up were Māori or Pacifica. 85% of them re-offended within two years. It was found to be less effective and more expensive than alternatives. And, and Jack, I would take it. the 50 to 65% in reduction 12 months after participation on violent crime, on theft and on burglary. And I'm telling you we can get better results. We've seen programs like this work within New Zealand already like the LSV program, scaled this up uh, and based a lot of the, print, the thinking around you that You mentioned here. Sir Peter Gluckman Sir John Key's former Chief Science Advisor he was commissioned to produce a discussion paper on youth crime, uh, harsh punishments have little deterrent effect on young people, boot camps do not work, so what did he say to you this week? Well I mean what's obvious to us is we got a 50 to 65% improvement in violent offending, I'm really worried about that this what what did a, he say to you this week? Oh, we talked. We talked about a range. We actually talked more about science issues. Was what we talked about in my office this did week. Did you talk to him about this? Uh, we touched on this very what briefly. What did he say? He said there were aspects of it that actually worked quite well. And I think the fifty, to 65, the 50 to sixty-five percent reduction in violent offending, uh, you know, serious burglary mm. and theft that happened twelve months after participation. That's good. But what I want to say to you is that's a program from two thousand and eight. What I'm talking about is actually... An it was going through, going through the, in the last national government. No, no, exactly, in the last national government. What yeah, I'm 2016, saying, a report to Anne Tolley, 2015. I mean, this, is, this yep. is your last and government. And what I'm telling you is we've taken that on board and we've actually said we can build a longer programme with did, more intensive did, did support Did Sir Peter Gluckman support your, this idea? Um, Peter's got his commitments around what he said in his report. That sounds like he said no. there were aspects of it that he, he thought that he you know that were D actually does, successful. Does he support the the the, uh, the military academies that you're introducing? Um, I'm, 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 that's up to Peter to tell you what he thinks about. With Will you cancel NZDF deployments in order to staff the boot camps? No, look, we've had look. I'm, I'm really sorry, Jack. I'm just not prepared to go and say what we're doing is is good enough. It's not good enough. It's not answering we, the question. No, no, but that it is. It's about my motivation for why we want to try. I, doing I think this. everyone it's agrees really that crimes are. Massive issue, but but will you will you cancel NZDF deployments in order to staff the boot? Because no, we won't. I mean the army barely has anyone left at the moment. No, we won't. But what I'm right. saying to you is that we've already you know we've gone. I'd, I'd encourage you go out to an LSV mm. program, go go mm. to a graduating class and actually see what it looks and feels like, and the difference that makes in those lives. And those same principles are what we're talking about putting in here. And most importantly, we have amazing community organisations. I've spent time with them, those social workers yeah. that are working with those ram raiders, uh, and they've done incredible work. They'll stick with these young people after as well. So. So, look, I think we have to do something different. And what I'm sick of in this country is an excuses culture. We have to get outcomes. The question is whether or not it's different. And um, it will be. Look, we'll be back in a second. We've got to keep moving. I'm doing a <laughs> terrible job of managing my time this morning. Stay with us. Christopher Luxon is back after the break. Kia ora, welcome back to Q&A. National Leader Christopher Luxon. Climate change. You would scrap the clean car discount, you oppose the emissions reduction plan, you would reintroduce oil and gas exploration. Can you give me one policy that National supports that reduces emissions and by how much it will reduce them? 
Well, look, I mean, what we're saying is we've got a government at the moment that's talked a big game on the climate uh, and climate change, and you've seen that. You know, all of a sudden we knock off gas mm. exploration. We now import three times as much Indonesian coal, mm. and it's twice as emissions dangerous okay, as, as gas. Back to my question. Back to my no, question. No, no, but I think it's important. One, no, okay, no, I'm, they can defend them. They can and what defend I'm saying to you Grant is that Robinson we are deeply week. committed to um, you know, net carbon zero by 2050. That our national Great. party has been very supportive. So give me of that. one policy that you support that reduces emissions and by how much? Well, I think the role of government is to actually not just do strategy and hooey sessions, which is a lot of what that emissions reduction plan is. The role of opposition we, is we, to oppose and propose. Correct, so, so give me your proposal. Correct. What policy, give me one policy that you support that reduces emissions and by how much? We would love to see more carbon capture uh, technologies put into the ETS scheme. We think the ETS scheme will do a lot of the heavy lifting for us in bending our emissions curve. But at the moment, we're 100% reliant on planting pine trees. The second thing that we would do is make sure the government government can uniquely do the things that it uniquely mm. can do. Things like powering up or catalyzing an EV charging network across the country. Mm. Speeding up um, consenting so that we can actually build mm. more renewable energy and electricity much, much faster. Right. Our resource consenting times are terrible. Those are things that government can do to make sure international investors, domestic investors, can make those investments. Kind of, in really you've kind of swerved around my question again though, but uh, I mean, well, what no, I want is a policy um, that reduces emissions and by how much? So I want some specificity here. What would be the price of carbon under the ETS? Because that's the that is what national is effectively leaning on so what would be the price of carbon under the ETS in order to achieve the emissions reductions that you've signed up to what I'm saying to you is I'm not going to give you the targets we'll, we'll give you a full no no but we'll give you a full policy on environmental policy and climate change policy we're working through that right how now. can this be but I want to give you the principles by which we talk about this right because that's the problem that I've got at the moment we talk about it in bumper stickers and headlines and we actually don't deliver But, but you're giving emissions. me no detail what whatsoever. Let me, let me you, talk you How is this any better? No, you're giving me absolutely no let detail. What, okay, what would the price yes. is, What would price be under, under the ETS? What I, would price I, the carbon? I, not, I don't know, Jack, and I'm not going to tell you. You don't know? I, don't, I mean, I don't this know. Is, this is, that's, how is that any no, better no, what than I'm a bumper sticker? What I'm telling you right now is what's important is to get the principles straight. We have an ETS scheme. It's really mm. important. That's going to do a lot of our heavy lifting. We believe that that actually could, you could add other carbon capture technologies into it. Right. We do think that government has a role to play, but at the, at the moment, government should really be thinking about the enablers by which it catalyses more investment into New Zealand. And the third thing I'd say to you is what I'm not up for is New Zealand is paying at the pump into an ETS scheme and corporate welfare that then goes to large multinationals to do what they frankly should be doing anyway. Mm. So. We, will, we believe in the ends, the means by which we deliver them, and the way in which we, you know, the government doesn't have a monopoly in the right. only ideas to deliver them, right? So I'm opposing some of that stuff. I, I like some of the stuff the government's doing around research and development investment, right. I think is really good. So you have criticised the government response to Herr Waka Ekenoa. You say that farmers should yep. set the rules when it comes to emissions reductions. Why should farmers be trusted? They have a massive financial interest. Farmers actually want to make sure they have, they have a massive interest in, in climate change. Mm. And when you get out and about and talk to farmers, as I often do, they know that they need to continue to evolve their farming practices. And they have. The way they farm today versus 5, 10, 15 years ago is right. very different, and it will be into the future. What did you say about the Reserve Bank? So what they we, were marking their own homework. So what we really want... So you're letting farmers set their own homework. Yeah, but let's be really clear. We don't have, we don't have a pathway to agricultural emissions reduction. And what I'd say to you We is certainly don't from the National Party. We've got an emissions reduction plan from the government and, and we we've have got a response to Hewaka Ekenoa. We have supported the carbon, net carbon zero 2050, we support the NDC 2030, and we supported the have emissions, you got an emissions budgets, reduction emissions plan? budgets yes, that James Yes, but have you got an emissions passed. reduction plan? We, we will have an emissions reduction plan. What I've told you so is you there don't. are aspects of it and in Hewaka principles Hewaka of it. And Hewaka the government has responded to. And what a poor response that was. And the National Party says it's over to farmers. No, because we said several years ago that we would support an industry-developed solution as did the government say that. The industry came forward with a solution called Haywaka Ekanoa, mm. and the government went and changed that in their recent submission. What they did is they said, we'll go kill beef and sheep, you know, 20% of sheep and beef farmers in seven years. That is utterly unacceptable. You cannot do that. We will move emissions just from New Zealand to other less carbon efficient places around the world. Not good enough. So and you're not giving farmers credit for the good stuff that they're doing. No emissions reduction plan. It's almost three years since Three Waters first started appearing before Cabinet. You were the Three Waters spokesperson for National. Where is an alternative policy for that? Well, as, we, as you heard a really good interview with Simon Watts, I thought you had a couple of weeks ago, where he said we want to go through the submission process. We're working closely with councils already. We're very clear about our principles. We don't, we want local control of the asset and no co-governance. We've been working with the councils for local democracy for some time. Mm. Uh, and so but, we would work no that plan up with councils. So, so, so we're waiting on a plan for three waters, an alternative. We're waiting on an emissions reduction plan. Have you got an alternative truancy plan? 
Uh, we will have, and we are talking mm. about that right now with Erica Stanford and ourselves, and we'll have something to say about that in the new year. Would you find parents for truant kids? Well, here's, this is the most startling stat I've had mm. in two years in politics. I mean, the fact that we are living in a developed country in New Zealand and 60% of our kids are not at school is utterly unacceptable. So would you find parents? Uh, I'm, I'm up for anything and everything that works. You're, you're open to I'm up for them? anything and everything that works. And that ranges from a government that has a mm. responsibility to get the resources to schools, schools where we have good practice and things that are actually working, let's make sure we, mm. we, we put that everywhere. But primarily it's about parental responsibility, supported by government and school. Did you ever action. take your kids out of school for holidays? Uh, I may have, but it might have been for a day or two uh, as I was travelling back to New Zealand from America, mm. but I can't remember that I've been out of school for some time. Election year next year. Yeah, looking forward to it. <laughs> it feels like it's going to be a long 12 months. Do you... Oh, no, look, I mean... Look, I, it'll be a long and exciting 12 months, I'm sure. Great. But do you trust Winston Peters? Uh, look, I, I know him a little bit from my past life. I, I, you know, I found it a pretty straight-up uh, interaction mm. with him when I discussed certain things with him in my old life. Um, yeah, and I found him you know, pretty straight up to deal with, you know, to be honest. Uh, but from my point of view, I know you want to go into the who we're ruling in and who we're ruling out. But the bottom line for us is we still have a year or so to go until mm. the election. We've come a long way in the last year, mm. uh, but we have a lot more work to do. And if you want to change this government, all I can say to your viewers is to, you know, to tick blue, you know, party vote national. That's but the way to do to it. To be clear, from the interactions you've had, you do trust Winston Peters? I don't know him that well, um, and I haven't had a deep working relationship with him. All I can observe is what everyone else has observed, given I'm new to will you, will you seek to develop that relationship over the next um, year? What I'm focusing on is, are we focusing on making sure the National Party yeah. actually has the ideas but around the economy, health, housing, education, I know those are the things you focus on, but will you, will you seek to meet with Winston Peters over the next year? Will I'm, you seek to develop that relationship? I'm going to be doing? just ruthlessly focused on taking the National Party cause to the New Zealand I'm, people. I'm sure you will be. I'm sure you'll have a little bit of doubt. <laughs> I, I appreciate you want the answer. No, no, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty reasonable question. Will, yeah. you, will you meet with a, Winston a, Peters? A year, and a year out, uh, before we even get to an election date, hasn't even been announced. I think that's way too premature to us to have any of those conversations. So about you, it. you won't even decide whether or not you will meet Winston Peters? I'm sure I've, if I run into Winston, we'll talk and pick up a conversation mm. um, as I talk to any political leader across the New Zealand's political spectrum. But, you know, we have a great country here in New Zealand. Yeah. Um, we need to get it turned around. We need to get it back on track. We are not delivering outcomes yeah. that improve people's daily lives. And we have to go to work on that. Finally, and we've only got 30 seconds here, but this is one for the real political train spotters. Labor and the <laughs> Greens uh, have entrenched a provision under three waters that would mean a future parliament would, would need a 60% support for water assets to be privatised. Again, I know this is fiddly and technical in the eyes of some people, but I just wondered if you had a response to that. Well, one is we've got no intention of privatising water assets. We've been very mm. clear about that. But I think what is really sneaky and not transparent is to whack that into what was 24 bills under mm. urgency last week. Uh, and it's actually breaking with, you know, we do that for constitutional issues, but not for this sort of thing. Mm. And so I really hope the government sees sense and actually backs it out next week. Thank you so much. Really appreciate your time. Hope you can have a bit of downtime over summer. Look forward to next enjoy year. Your summer too. Take care. National leader Christopher Luxon. If you want to contact the Q&A team, please call or my. These are our main platforms. You can email us, find us on Twitter or Facebook. Up next, Aussie, Aussie, Aussie. Oi. We sit down with Australia's Home Affairs Minister to ask when New Zealanders in Australia will get a better deal. Hawkey Mai, welcome back to Q&A. Shortly after taking office in May this year, Australian Prime Minister Anthony Albanese promised several measures to improve the rights and conditions for New Zealanders in Australia. Hundreds of thousands of Kiwis live in Australia, but for years they've been disadvantaged when it comes to benefits, student loans and voting rights. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill is promising to improve the lot for Kiwis in Australia. And she spoke to One News Australia correspondent Andrew McFarlane. Australia and New Zealand are often referred to as siblings, but in the past we've seemed more like estranged relatives. The New Zealand and Australia relationship is being tested. But in July this year, following a change of Prime Minister, things started to thaw. I can see what Anthony Albanese pledging to make it easier for Kiwis to become Australian citizens, with changes to be revealed on Anzac Day next year. We don't want people to be temporary residents forever. So with around five months until the deadline, we've travelled here to Parliament House in Canberra to meet with Australia's Home Affairs Minister to hear how the lives of Kiwis and Oz could be made easier. 
Thank you very much for agreeing to have a talk to me, Minister. I wanted to start off with the simple question. Why are Kiwis treated like second-class citizens here in Australia? It's a really important question, and that's something that's really been bothering me for a long time, and I know bothers our Prime Minister, Anthony Albanese. And I think we have reached a real um, change in the tone and tenor of this relationship, and that's largely built off this really deep and genuine friendship between our two Prime Ministers. So we are having a look at the moment about what we can do to make this fairer, because the truth is that Australians in New Zealand are treated in a very different way than New Zealanders are in Australia, and it is something that the government wants to address. New Zealanders don't get the right to vote here. They don't get access to certain welfare payments, disability payments. Mm -hmm. Housing can be a bit more difficult to access as part of the formal government system as well. Um, student allowances and student loans, those sort of things, are you looking to fix those? Are all of those on the table in these discussions? Yeah. So um, if I can just say that's not the full list of things. One of the things that's really interesting is that for a bunch of kind of complex legal reasons, New Zealanders can't transition to become Australian citizens in the way that migrants from other countries around the world are able to do. And we're looking to address some of the issues that you listed before. And you'll just have to wait for a little bit before we get to the details. Surely there's some detail, though. I mean, like the, the cost of, of a partner sponsoring someone for a yeah. permanent visa, that's around $8,000. Yeah. Is that look is that something you're looking yeah. at reducing? So I think the expense is a real issue, but you're just going to have to hold tight and wait for a little bit. It's not going to be a very good announcement if I announce it now. So we're, we're looking through all of these. It is quite complex and difficult. There are about 500,000 New Zealanders living in Australia, with criticisms the current pathway favours those who have a tertiary education and earn a higher wage. Do you think the current system is maybe discriminating against, against lower income people as well in kind of all walks of life? Yeah, I mean, I think that's without question because that is the way that the system's designed. And that was a, a change that was agreed to um, by a previous Australian Prime Minister, Malcolm Turnbull. Um, so what he, what he basically did was create a scheme where um, high-income Kiwis could find a pathway to citizenship, but without addressing any of the issues for other Kiwis living in our country. Another big sticking point between Australia and New Zealand is 501 deportees, Kiwi citizens, many of which who've lived in Australia for most of their lives, booted back to Aotearoa with no consideration of where their family is. How does it feel to be kicked out of Australia? Oh. Our country doesn't want you, are you excited to go home? Claire O'Neill's predecessor copped flack for this comment. It's taking the trash out, then we can make Australia a safer place. Do you agree with that statement or are you polar opposite when it comes to this? <clears throat> um, Peter Dutton, you know, isn't known for his uh, delicate framing of, of these issues. Um, I wouldn't put it that way. The Albanese government's promised to be more reasonable with how it enforces the policy. So it's really clear that we will maintain the power to eject people from our country who commit crimes and are... So the 501 policy is not going on anywhere. So, so 501 is not disappearing. Um, as, as in New Zealand, you have the same power and the same abilities and it is exercised in the same way. I think what will change is how that power is exercised with relation to people who are New Zealanders living in Australia and not with all New Zealanders living in Australia. The Home Affairs Minister doesn't think the ANZAC relationship has been permanently damaged by the policies of the past, ahead of a suite of changes expected to bring us closer. That's One News Australia correspondent Andrew McFarlane. After the break, globalisation's been good for some things. It probably made your TV a whole lot cheaper. But what about the downsides? I sit down with the boss of the World Trade Organisation to question whether the WTO is still relevant today. Hokimai, welcome back. In a post-pandemic world with disrupted supply chains and shifting geopolitical dynamics, the role of free trade is very much up for debate. But in recent years, critics have questioned the relevancy and authority of the WTO. World Trade Organisation Director Ngozi Ukonjo-Iwala visited New Zealand briefly this week and we sat down in Parliament. And I began by asking her about her meetings in New Zealand. I've come to New Zealand because New Zealand has been playing an amazingly constructive role at the WTO. Not just now, but over time. Uh, New Zealand has chaired many committees, helped us to get some of the successes we've had. And I wanted to say thank you, and uh, I wanted to ask for more, more support. <laughs> Here at the end of 2022, we are rapidly approaching the WTO's 30th anniversary. But in recent years, the commitment 
of the world's biggest economy, the United States, has been called into question. Increasingly, leaders are pursuing protectionist policies. Why is the WTO still relevant? Oh, the WTO is enormously relevant. You know, I often liken it to water. You know, you take it for granted until you no longer have it, and then you see what you're missing. Uh, the WTO's rules underpin 75% of world trade, making sure there's a level playing field, people trade according to certain rules, there are good practices uh, that, that members adhere to. If you were to remove all those, then we might get to a world where it's a free-for-all, and I think no one would want that. So the WTO is hugely relevant for that. The second issue is, I don't think we can solve some of the problems of the global commons today without trade and the WTO. How can you solve the pandemic if you can't move goods from places where they're needed? And the WTO and trade played a very important role for vaccines, uh, for moving other types of uh, medical um, support measures from one place to the other where they were needed. So to solve the pandemic, you need supply chains, you need WTO, you need trade. The, the third thing is climate change, which is an existential threat. Can you just imagine? Uh, you want to move to net zero by 2050. You need new technologies. How do you move them from one place to the other where they can be easily adopted? How do you adapt when you have a climate event? You need goods and services to recover and to build resilience. They only come through trade. Uh, food. They are net food importing countries, and we have very high food prices now. Without food, uh, uh, tr uh, traded food, and I want you to know that one in every five calories consumed in the world is traded, the WTO underpins all of that. So it's hugely relevant. Do you see a strong connection between countries that have pursued free trade policies that have subsequently experienced populist backlashes? Yes, uh, let us say this. People must not forget that this system with the uh, general, general agreement on tariffs and trade and, and the WTO was built over 75 years. And I see it as a global public good. People should not forget it's lifted mm. over a billion people out of poverty. Mm. Yes, a lot of them in China and East Asia, but also around the world. It's also made consumers in rich countries uh, have more affordability of goods, and that has made them better off. But there's no doubt also that there are people who have been left behind. There are poor people within rich countries and poor countries who have not benefited as much. That's the first. So we have to correct that. The second thing is to recognize that sometimes trade is blamed for things that it shouldn't be blamed for. When technology has uh, improved and taken away jobs. Sometimes people say it's trade. So we also need to, to, to deal with that. But be it, uh, all that being said, I think that those left behind and the perception that it's true trade has led to populism, which has encouraged protectionism and people feeling that we are not benefiting from this. Uh, but we need to counter that in two ways. First, how can we use trade more directly right. to really benefit people, include those who have not been included? Two, governments themselves need to put in active labor market policies. In other words, you also need to spend mm. some resources within your country to help retrain those who have been left behind and move them to new jobs. We are, in all likelihood, heading into a recession. How do you see that affecting the more protectionist policies? Well, you know, recessions are always difficult, isn't it? Because they, they make people feel worse off. Although in this recession, in many developed countries, we're going into it with tight labor markets and so on. Uh, New Zealand has a fairly tight labor market. Very Australia market. has yeah. even the U.S. So it's an interesting one, but there's no doubt that the inflationary pressures that are, are being felt and all that give a sentiment that people are not feeling as well off. And there may well be a tendency to also say it's because of trade and globalization. We just need to be articulate about what the issues are. The pandemic exposed certain vulnerabilities, yes, in supply chains. The war in Ukraine has exacerbated issues, and so we need to be very clear with the population why we're getting these pressures and where they're coming from. So 
uh, trade or the WTO is not wrongly blamed. We're actually part of the solution, not part of the problem. But, but what do you do about global leaders who, in the face of a recession, are more inclined to pursue protectionist policies, who want to go out to their voters and say, for example, America first? Well, um, politicians how, uh, tend to look a little bit more at the short term. They have to look at what can win them votes and, you know, take care of domestic issues. Um, but I hope that uh, the, the leaders will also factor in that in the longer term they're better off with this multilateral trading system than not. And I can tell you one example that leaders are listening. I was at the G20. Uh, just a few uh, days ago in Bali, and I cannot tell you just how many times <laughs> almost every leader talked about the need to maintain open and free trade and to support the WTO. If you look at the communique, you'll see that what I'm saying is true. The WTO is mentioned more than 10 times. It's unprecedented. So I think there's a recognition that, yes, I might have to look after my domestic issues, but, well, I can't solve certain problems on my own, and I do need this system, and I need the WTO. What about the role of the US? In recent years, the United States has repeatedly vetoed judges from being appointed to the appellate court, seen by many states as a guarantor for less powerful countries. There is little evidence that Joe Biden's attitude towards the WTO is actually that much different to Donald Trump's. Do you genuinely believe the United States is committed to the role and function of the World Trade Organization? Well, let's put it this way. As you know, my appointment after I won the competition was blocked under the Trump administration. And the f one of the f very first things that President Biden did was to unblock that and allow me to be appointed. So um, if you judge that I'm capable of running the organization, that must be a good sign. So one, two, I think the Biden administration, yes, some of the complaints against the WTO's uh, um, uh, dispute settlement system and so on are bipartisan. Many both sides of the aisle have issues. Uh, but I think we see the Biden administration more willing to engage. I'm not saying they don't have the same complaints, but it's one thing to have a set of complaints. It's another to want to solve them. And uh, they're engaging now on the dispute settlement system where the appellate body, as you rightly said, Jack, has been stymied in terms of fun its functioning. The first level, panel level, is functioning, but the appellate body is not. So they've been engaging with other members recently to voice their complaints, hear from other members, and we hope that this will lead to a very solid program to reform the entire dispute settlement system next year. Mm -hmm. We would very much like the U.S. to continue to engage. I have to tell you one second fact, which is promising. During the ministerial, uh, the 12th ministerial we had in June, the U.S. was very constructive in helping us get to solutions. We had an unprecedented 10 agreements, some of them legally binding. U.S. was constructive. China was constructive. Mm -hmm. Russia was at the table, Ukraine. And I say we are the only multilateral organization as of now that has managed to get legally binding agreements with all these actors around the table, even in spite of the geopolitical tensions, which I admit. But, but with that inertia through the disputes process, there are problems, are there not, for smaller countries? And you spoke at the, at the start of this interview about New Zealand and New Zealand's role in the WTO. We are a small player relative to the likes of the United States or China. How can the WTO, as it stands, with problems in that dispute process, actually stand up for the rights of those smaller parties? Well, I think it is because the smaller countries, and I don't want you to downplay New Zealand's weight uh, too much. Yes, it's a small country, but it punches above its weight consistently and is listened to. Um, um, so what, what I, I want to say is that, look, um, first of all, the panel level, you know, this, appeal, this dispute settlement system has two levels. Mm -hmm. It's not completely stopped. So, so countries are, and members are still able to bring disputes. We have seven that have been brought this year, 20 that are ongoing as at now. It's just that if there's 
quote-unquote a judgment. You cannot appeal it because they appeal it. But then, of course, for small countries that need to be able to tackle the bigger ones, you know, it's, it's disconcerting if you yeah. cannot do that. But we are now on the road to trying to reform this. In the meantime, there have been other approaches. I tell you now, Australia and China, uh, Australia has brought two cases. Australia and China have actually agreed that after the panel level, if there's a need to go further, they will agree to an interim arbitration system uh, that has been developed at the WTO to go to arbitration. That's a very good sign. And we want to encourage our members to talk to each other and resolve these disputes through dialogue as much as possible. Geopolitical tensions between the US and China have been increasing steadily in recent years. It's something New Zealanders keep a very close eye on. China is New Zealand's largest trading partner. How do you expect that tension to affect trade in the coming years? Well, the geopolitical tensions between the US and China, the EU and China, even between the EU and the US, between Russia and the rest of the world, is something we live on a daily basis, and I acknowledge that they, they are uh, getting, they are not getting better. But we found uh, ways and means to explain within the WTO that we actually need multilateral fora where people can come together to solve some problems that can be solved by any one member. So even though things are getting tough, We've been able to maintain everyone around the table at the WTO. We will be able to continue doing that. We'll have to see, but we're certainly trying to. At the same time, we're encouraging our members not to weaponize uh, trade. Um, and and for, for instance, during the 12th ministerial, we had some very good agreements on not putting export restrictions and prohibitions, which countries can do when they want to protect themselves, yeah. uh, for food, uh, to make sure we have, we, we, we do away with this, especially for humanitarian food supplies. That's just an example of how you can get a agreement. Two, I just want to say one more fact. Even though we have these very serious geopolitical tensions, I want to tell you that what businesses and consumers are doing on the ground mm. tells a slightly different story. Trade between China and the U.S. at $653 billion last year is as high as at the peak in 2018. Between the EU and China, $818 billion. Mm. Australia and China, 160. What am I trying to say? Even as we have these tensions, businesses and consumers are making certain decisions that are keeping trade flowing between these two countries. So I don't want us to exaggerate too much the practicality of what we're seeing in trade. Finally, Director General, your term in this role is historic in that you are the first person to hold this position from Africa. You're the first woman to lead the WTO. Do you intend to run for another term? I barely, I'm, so, I, I'm trying to get through this one. Thank <laughs> God we've had some successes. So I'm definitely not thinking of a second term yet. I'm just trying to make this one work, and I'm happy to say we've had a big success at our ministerial. After decades, for instance, on fisheries, two decades of not getting an agreement, we got one. Mm. We got an agreement on a TRIPS waiver for vaccines so developing countries can manufacture. We got an agreement on a moratorium on electronic transmissions, uh, you know, so that businesses can move these digital trade and services easily. That's quite a lot going on. So I, I want to keep focusing on getting successes, not on planning another term. That is World Trade Organization Director Ngozi Ikonjo-Iwala. Stay with us. Q&A is back after the break. Hoki mai we welcome back to Q&A. Just so you know, next Sunday is our final show of 2022 and we've got a cracking lineup for you. Finance Minister Grant Robertson will be here. In a couple of weeks, he has his budget policy statement, which sounds dry, but it'll show us how much new spending the government is planning in next year's budget. And given the state of the economic forecast at the moment, that will be critical. Minister Willie Jackson will be here as well. That's always lively. For now, though, kua mutu. That's Q&A for this week. From the Q&A team, thank you for watching. 
watching. Nā mihi ki a koutou i ngā karere. Thank you very much for your feedback. Hei tērā wiki. We'll see you next Sunday at 9am. Q&A is public interest journalism funded through New Zealand On Air.